Hello and welcome to Kolot. This is your host, Rabbi Hillel Kappenstein of the Columbus Community Kolel, and it is a privilege to bring to you our third episode featuring Rabbi Aaron Cutler. This episode is dedicated for a Rafua Shalema complete recovery for Avra Mayer Ben Zelda Bela. Thank you to everyone who listened to our last episode with Sivan Rehav Meir and for the very encouraging feedback. She's truly remarkable and there's so much to learn from her. In this episode, we will discuss how American Torah Jewry came about. In America alone, there are hundreds of yeshivas and kolels today. But what was it like when there weren't so many, and how did all of that change? There isn't a vibrant Jewish community around today without a kolel, if not several. What did the Cutler household look like? What was the level of chesed? You will hear a story which will shock you. So now, let me tell you about our guest. Rabbi Aaron Cutler is President Emeritus of Beth Medrash Gavoa. He led Beth Medrash Gavoa from 1995 through 2021. Under his leadership, BMG grew fourfold and he helped it become the premier yeshiva of our generation and one of the largest in Jewish history. He has guided the transformational growth of BMG's host city, Lakewood, New Jersey, from a quiet town into New Jersey's fourth largest city. Like his father and grandfather before him, who were central to the worldwide revival of the Jewish people after the Holocaust, he is active in Jewish community building internationally with a focus on strengthening yeshivas and community kolels. Prior to assuming his tenure at BMG, he served on the faculty of Eshat Torah in Jerusalem. Rabbi Cutler, thank you so much for joining Kolot. It's wonderful to be here with you, Rabbi Hillel, and to see that you have a second career, not only as a community leader in Columbus, Ohio, and nationally, but also as perhaps the up-and-coming Rush Limbaugh of the uh, <laughs> Jewish community of North America. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. So um, you have a, such an incredible and impressive bio. Um, and one of the things that struck me was the movement that your grandfather started, which was really after the Holocaust. And you know that was a time in Jewish. I want to you know focus on that to start off. You know that was a time in Jewish history where the people, our people, you know, we were just so downtrodden, and yet your grandfather started something that that is literally. I mean, like you know, today the Jewish people were you know we're doing really well in this um, in, in in this sense. So, what did he see in America that gave him hope? I wouldn't say that he started anything as much as he was central to reorienting American Judaism to its eternal Torah traditions. And when the Jews started to come to the America in great numbers, the early migrations of the 1900s, there was a sense that tradition, religion, observance, um, Torah study, they were from the old country and for the old country. And a lot of American Jews tried to build a new model built around chesed, uh, hospitals, um, 
great big synagogues. And unfortunately for those Jews and their families, that model did not hold. It, it did not provide longevity for, for them and their communities. And most of those communities have sadly disappeared. And my grandfather had a very keen sense that without Tyra, without Torah study and real engagement with Tyra, um, there would be no future for the Jewish people. And in a sense, he viewed the role of uh, man and Torah where humanity was meant to be subservient to uh, Torah and not to try to change it into what it isn't or or uh, to shape it into something else. So he wanted to stay true to the ideals and himself and the Jewish people true to the essential age, age old truths that are found in the Torah. Oh, beautiful. And you know, that is actually what we say when we return the Torah to the ark, we refer to it as the, as a, as Chaim as life, but not life to just anyone. It has to be for those who hold it very tightly. So that sounds like that, that was the, uh, the theme and the approach that he took here in America. I think that there is no greater gift that the Jewish people have uh, than our Torah. That's our distinctiveness. Our distinctiveness is not in the number of Nobel Prizes that we have won, although we have certainly had some success with that. It's not in the great literature that we have uh, perhaps contributed to uh, humanity, but it's, it's, uh, it's the moral voice. We, we have a unique moral voice, not because we're smarter uh, not because we're better educated or we're better family people or better community people. It's because we have this great eternal gift from HaKadosh Baruch of the Torah. That is what, that is what makes us distinctive. When we lose that, we lose our distinctiveness. We rapidly assimilate and we rapidly uh, lose the contribution, the great contribution that the Jewish people make to humanity, which is to be the voice of, of truth, the voice of morals, the voice of Hashem in the world. And the world so badly needs that. Yes, certainly does. Uh, you know, I want to go just a drop further before we move on. Can you talk about some of his core values, some of the things that he really wanted to um, embed in the yeshiva, in the community, and what were they? And do you feel that they're still present today? I think that the essence of... The Torah study, we spoke about this a moment ago, or the sense of bittel before it, not to impose man-made constructs onto Torah, but to uh, recognize Torah as a great illuminating uh, truth, a great illuminating wisdom that is the word of Hashem. And to take that wisdom and to say to oneself, how do I shape myself with this great tool? How do I, how do I create a life that ultimately is a life of meaning, a life of spirituality, a life of great simcha, and even a life of uh, success, temporal success in this world, uh, a life of supakanefesh, and the realization that the Torah is meant to shape us. We're not meant to, we're not meant to distort it uh, to the things that our hearts desire or our minds desire. But to be to be shaped by it, and that's 
that's it, it, two people can study a, a a folio of Talmud with, with very different approaches, and that approach is that we are B'nai Torah. The Torah shapes us, and no human being is perfect. No human being can come in and say, "I'm better than the man or the woman next to me." There's, there's no absolutely no one who could say that, but we can and should say that the gift that Hashem gave us is the greatest gift ever, and there's no gift like it. It's it's more precious than wealth. It's uh, more important than uh, anything else that goes on in our lives because of the good, the blessing that it brings to uh, to all human beings. So his life was about Tyre. It was about embracing Tyre, embracing Tyre, embracing its values, applying it first and foremost to himself and inspiring in his students and in all those around him a tremendous love for Tyra. If you would see the old photos of uh, Irving Bunim, of blessed memory, one of my grandfather's great, great uh, lay leaders uh, of a Stephen Klein uh, dancing with the Torah scroll, that absolute sense. The only time I ever witnessed that, I was once at a Hachnosa Sefer Torah in Berlin, Germany, and we danced with the Sefer Torah through the streets of Berlin uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, there was a gentleman from the Berlin Jewish community dancing with the Torah scrolls uh, in the street, uh, streets of Berlin. And that, that sense of absolute joy of th- this is true eternal strength. This is, this is what, uh, when Irving Butem held this Torah scroll, it was with love, like he was holding a, uh, a little baby with the, with the greatest of love to cherish it. And, uh, it's, it's rare to really see that, but my grandfather was able to engender that in, in those around him. Uh, I was once privileged to uh, have dinner with uh, uh, Moise Safra in Brazil, in Sao Paulo, and he took out these uh, the silver ornaments that go on the Torah scrolls that were from the synagogue that his family had prayed in in Lebanon, and he took them out and he held them in. Tears rolled down this uh, billionaire banker's cheeks as he held these the, the silver ornaments to the Torah scroll as if they were the most precious uh, item in his possession, that there was nothing of greater value, nothing uh, more important than the ornaments that go on the Torah scroll, or the more so the scrolls themselves, or the more so the, the words, the meaning, the values that are contained within the Torah. And we as Jews should recognize that it is the Torah that has shaped humanity. These these scrolls, these letters, these books, they have shaped uh, the human race, unfortunately not enough. And to the degree that there is uh, wrongdoing in the world, that there's injustice, that there's uh, pain and suffering inflicted by one human being against the other, that is because not enough people have embraced uh, the, the values of the Torah. And it's a gift. We should just look at it. It's simply, it is the greatest gift that we have. If you open up uh, the Columbus Dispatch, I think your newspaper out there, or uh, out here is the Asbury Park Press, or the New York Post, or the Houston Chronicle, uh, or a paper from overseas, you'll read stories of mayhem, of murder, of, uh, of misdeeds. And those concepts are covered in the Torah as 
the very basic fundamentals of how we're meant to live our lives. This is the greatest gift to a good life, the greatest gift to happiness, the gift of charity, the gift of Shabbos, the gift of Chesed, the gift of Bikacholim, the gift of Baltashkas. This, this is the moral fabric of the Jewish people for us and obviously for the world at large to create a great world. That love for Tyra, it was missing. There was maybe a, too much of a relief at leaving the suffering of Russia, leaving the suffering of Poland uh, or, or Ukraine or wherever Jews came from. They were so happy with the freedom of the United States. It's, let's forget about this gift for a little bit. Tyra Muznach was uh, left forlorn in the in the corner. He took it back from the corner and put it in its right place in, in the heart and soul of the Jewish people. Beautiful. Now that's a, that's 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 uh, and, and and that legacy is very pronounced. I love that. Um, and you mentioned Irving Bunim. Um, there's some great pictures, I believe, with him, your grandfather, and the recent Jewish Observer. And I, I saw it uh, printed. It's some uh, incredible stuff in there. Um, I want to now get to your father, your mother. I had the very unique opportunity to meet your mother. It was, I was a Bachar learning in Lakewood. I was single at the time and I was having a suit. I was having a Friday night Shabbat dinner, uh, by uh, the, one of the Rosh Hashivas by Rav David Shostel. And on the way home, um, he stopped by to wish, uh, your mother, Allah Shalom, good Shabbos. And, and I had the opportunity to meet her. I didn't have the opportunity to meet your father. Um, Zetzal. and I want to know if you could talk a little bit about your parents, what it was like growing up in their home. Was it a wealthy home? How do you define wealth? Um, what were some of the things that, that, uh, you know, that really stick with you today? That's, you know, first and foremost on your mind because of your parents. And if you could share with us a little bit about that. Her parents were murdered in the Holocaust. And my father was a refugee from, um, Kletsk who managed to escape to Palestine. So they were refugees whose lives, communities, everything was, uh, torn away from them. And, they lived their lives for the Jewish people and not in a selfish, self-centered way, but in a absolutely selfless, uh, devoted way to the good and welfare of every individual Jew. And my father's specialty was to see the value of uh, every human being. And the word you must did not exist in his vocabulary. So his his idea of spiritual growth, of moral growth, of personal growth was perhaps as a leader to help the individual realize their own beauty, their own greatness. And he was of the firm belief that once a person recognizes their own value, these may sound very trite, but trust me, Rabbi, they're not. Uh, once the individual recognizes their own value, their own greatness, um, they, they want to rise to that. They want to live on a, on a, on a level of greatness. And my father, uh, that was his style with all those around them. So if he saw a misbehavior or misdeed or people misguided or making trouble or uh, you have it, uh, he didn't really focus on that. It's not like the itch that you have to scratch because then it itches a little bit more. It was rather to focus on the, the rest of the human being and say, look, but let's let's think of how great you are. Let's think of let's think of of, of the wonderful uh, gifts that you have. Let's think of the wonderful strengths that you have. And as as Jews, um, we we have to be proud as as Torah Jews. 
we have to be even more proud as uh, as as B'nai Torah, whose lives are shaped by Torah values. We're the absolute luckiest human beings who ever walked the face of this earth, and let's embrace that. Let's love that. Let's let's uh, let's be elevated by it. And that was really his style with with everyone around him. And it didn't make a difference if you were a great Torah scholar or a simple tradesman. This was his style: was to help people to make them feel really, really wonderful about their own potential, their own their own sense of who they can be, and to help them to encourage them to rise to that. So that was the home I grew up in. It was a home of service. I'll never forget. Uh, there was once this old woman stayed with us for Pesach, and she was sitting in the living room. We had a very small living room, and. Uh, she was sitting on the recliner, uh, chewing paper and shooting spitballs. I was a kid and the mailman uh, came by and the mailman said to me, uh, he knew my name. He said, hey, Aaron, uh, why is your grandmother shooting spitballs all over the room? I said, it's not my grandmother. He says, who is that? I said, I have no idea. So I went to my mother. I said to my mother, who is this lady? My mother said, I, I don't know. She just somehow landed up here. So their lives were were really devoted in, in a serious sacrificial way, but without a feeling of sacrifice. You know, the worst thing is the do-gooder. It makes you feel guilty that you're sacrificing and and it just, it doesn't feel right. They were, they were there with such a joy to help others, to be of assistance to others. I mean, my mother's days were, she was the bigger column of her day, answering calls and uh, Making appointments for people with doctors and cajoling physicians to 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 see patients when they wouldn't want to, and making shaduchim and helping people with uh, financial circumstances, but with but with with joy, with energy, with enthusiasm. I'll, I'll never forget this uh, time. My mother said to me, my mother made hundreds of. She was a great matchmaker, to unmatched matchmaker, and she said to me, you know, I made three shaduchim this week, three matches. She says, and one of them was a little hard. So I said, Mom, what was that? What was that tough one? She said, well, the woman was a divorcee, and the woman's first husband uh, never really held down a job. And the woman said, I like the idea, Rebetzin, of this guy you're recommending for me to date as a possible remarriage, but this new guy doesn't have a job. Like, I, I can't go through this again. But I said, don't worry, by the time we meet him, by the time you get serious, he's looking, I know he's going to find the job. So sure enough, the couple, they like each other and they're, uh, things are progressing. And my mother realizes she's got to close the deal, but she's got to get the guy a job. So my mother calls one of the uh, supporters of the yeshiva, one of the Balabatim, as we're a lay leader. And she said, I mean, this is a really great week. I made a, a couple of shidduchim. And, you know, one of them, not only did I make a shidduch, but... I found the the guy, I, I got him a job. And that was how the shit happened. This guy says, wow, that's beautiful. Who hired him? My mother says, you just did. And that was how she closed on the deal. She got him a job with this person and, and all. And her whole life was that. So to live in such a home is just, what a privilege. Wow. Now that's beautiful. Now I want to get to uh, yourself. And not everyone knows um, some people do know. Not everyone knows your special relationship with Rav Noach Weinberg. Actually, just this morning, I was learning this book, um, 48 Ways of Wisdom. 
um, which is something that Rav Noach was very famous for. Um, I believe you have a, you know, spent a lot, some time by Aisha Torah um, in Eretz Yisrael. Can you talk a little bit about your time there and what you learned from Rav Noach? You know, Rav Noach was a great soul, uh, somewhat tormented by the pain he felt at assimilation in the Jewish people. Uh, somewhat maybe is, a, is too moderate of a word. And his love for the Jewish people was so great that you always had this sense around him that it's just what a pain at the loss of Hashem's children uh, to his nation. And Ramok was a, that was greatness in of itself. And I speak not of his incredible achievements as having uh, created one of the greatest cure of yeshivas, cure of movements, and having normal normalized outreach so that you, Rabbi Kapenstein, in uh, Columbus, Ohio, today, we're all beneficiaries of that legacy of a cure of uh, mindset that. It's a responsibility that it can be done, it should be done, that it is being done. Uh, but he he was a groundbreaker in that. But I speak not of those achievements as much as the feelings that as a human being he engendered in his feeling the absolute pain at the loss of every single Jew who was not uh, connected, did not feel connected to the Jewish people. And I, I want to say something that's really important. Uh, for all of us um, out there, you know, the Jews who are not connected to Judaism, many of them crave that connection. Not all of them, but many do. And many of them crave that bond. And they just want us to reach out and to open up a little bit. I'll, I'll share with you, Rabbi Hill, I was just up in Manitoba in uh, Churchill in uh in Canada, and we landed in a small airport town of 700, and the air traffic control gentleman sees a couple of folks getting off the plane with yarmulkes and tzitzis. So it's a little town. He tracks us down. He finds where we're staying, and he comes over, and he says to me, Rabbi, uh, he didn't know I was a rabbi. He said, uh, you know, I'm a Jew, and uh, I'm the only Jew in this town of 700. As far as he knew, he was. He knew everyone in town pretty much town with more polar bears than human beings anyway, but he says, I, I, I'm a Jew, and to see another Jew here is just so wonderful. And uh, he joined us. We had a little kumzitz, uh, played some music and all, and then uh, I, we invited his, him, his wife, and his two daughters to come join us the next evening uh, after he finished his shift as an air traffic controller. And they joined us, and his daughters had said to him during the day, I didn't know there were other Jewish humans out there. Like, they're just they were so isolated. And that's a little bit of an extreme case, but it's really not so extreme. They they want the connection. You know, people want to belong to something. Materialism is not the great satisfier for the human soul. Uh, materialism actually engenders thirst in the human being for more materialism. Doesn't satisfy, does not slake your thirst. So, Satisfaction in life, connection, comes from genuine connections that are not artificial. And what greater connection is there for one Jew to another where we have walked a common path with a common spiritual nation for 3,000 years from Sinai to today? What greater bond is there than that? Imagine if I 
Imagine if I hiked the Appalachian, maybe Hill one day we'll do the Appalachian Trail together or the Pacific Crest Trail or something. But imagine you do that with somebody, the bond you you have, it becomes a lifelong bond. Well, imagine walking with someone for 3,000 years. What a connection. And then that person's alone in the world and they have a job and they, they go to Starbucks and, you know, everything in, in today's world is anonymous and randomized and atomized and everybody's on their stupid cell phones or their stupid smartphones and self-absorbed in, in, uh, in, in, in something that some big corporation is, is feeding you because that algorithm makes them money and all. And then here's a genuine human connection, but it's not a random one or in a bar where you go home with them and you have a good time. It's a, it's, a, it's an authentic connection for the, that reflects millennia of history, millennia of experience, of travails, of successes, and ultimately of a shared impact on the world. What a bond. So we can embrace that. We can, we can utilize that. We can, we can call on that. And the, the Jews around us, they really want that. They want to be connected. You, you know, the, I find this so interesting because, you know, the Cutler family in Lakewood is known as a very Kolel um, heavy family. And then you talk about your relationship with, with Riv Noach, which is, you know, for a lack of a better term, just, you know, Kiruv Rechokim, it's outreach to the secular. How do you think the Kolel movement and the outreach, the Kiruv movement have complemented each other? Well, I don't think Kiruv can be very successful without returning, helping the Jews, so to speak, return to their traditions and to a life of Tyra. Without that, that life will just revert. You can take a person who is disconnected and reintroduce them to Shabbat. Shabbat is beautiful. Uh, to holidays, to Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Hanukkah, Sukkot, Shavuot, Sufganiyo, to Jewish humor, to Jewish culture and all. But uh, Chesed, if we miss the Torah element, that return, unfortunately, History will show that it doesn't last. So the ultimate aim of Kirov and the aim of Kolo, the aim of Yeshivas, they're all the same, is to ensure that every Jew is connected to a life of Torah. And there are different formats, maybe different delivery mechanisms uh, for the same uh, for the same goal, the same focus. No, that's that's great. That's beautiful. So now Coming to a little bit further in your uh, in your career, so you came to Lakewood in the mid '90s, and things took off in Lakewood at really uh, at unprecedented levels. Uh, perhaps we could say that Lakewood grew in a 25 year period more than any other Jewish community in the history of the world in such a short span of time. Um, obviously, there was tremendous uh, you know blessing and siyata deshmaya. You know, after that, what do you attribute so much of this growth to? The the model is the best model. The model is the right model. And look, the amenities are great in a place like Lakewood. And don't get me wrong, they're they're wonderful amenities. But the amenities uh, follow the model. The religious amenities follow the model. The model is the right one, which is uh, lives centered uh, on our heritage, centered on our on the truths that we hold so precious. Once you do that, the rest, uh, it follows. It follows 
naturally it follows in a beautiful way, but I believe it all follows from that. So the success um, is that which should happen when in a free country, we live in a beautiful free country with great blessings, um, allows us to connect to our tradition and to grow and flourish with it. And with that comes many blessings, many challenges, obviously, but comes the blessings of life. Sure. So, you know, going in a little deeper on the, I guess we could say on the micro level, can you talk about some of the people, some of the partners, um, both professional staff and lay leaders that helped in this process and what their leadership meant? There are generations after generation of lay leaders who passionately believe in the cause. And it began, as I mentioned, with a, a Klein, a Bunim, a Firestein, a, uh, just the, that, that, that very small handful of Bentheim who uh, said, this is the right thing to do. This is, this is, this is how we should build the Jewish people. And as they have Wolfson, um, individuals like that. And then in the next generation, there were more and more. And today, it's somewhat of a, maybe no one should take offense at this, but it's somewhat of a cultural movement where in that cultural movement, commitment to the greater good and welfare uh, is an integral part of life. So there were so many individuals who I certainly was blessed to work with and am continued to be blessed to work with who inspired me and continue to inspire me every day. You say, we're, we're hauling this wagon together. We're, we're in this. We've got a road to travel. There'll be some bumps on the road, but we're, we're doing this together for, uh, for what, we've, what we know is right. And can you share with us some statistics? Um, how many Jewish families, how many uh, Kolel families, how many single students, how many married people learning in Kolel, and then how many working families, and what's the average time that someone learns and then goes to work, and how do they get to work after you know not going to college in between, maybe taking some courses? Walk us through a little bit of the you know uh, facts on the ground. Uh, Seventy five hundred students at any one time in yeshiva. 6,000 married with families, 1,500 single, uh, 1,000 new students a year, approximately 1,000 leave. Um, averages, they say liars, uh, statistics don't lie, but liars make statistics. So the statistical average is somewhere around six years, but that reflects many different sub-trends uh, of the great Torah scholars who devote their lives to learning to those who only stay here a year or two and then want to study in Israel to those who want to go into business, those who want to go into community life. So there's many substrands, but uh, again, we're getting a little bit over a thousand new a year and about a thousand, a little bit over a thousand leave. We now have 7,500 and around us is a community of approximately a hundred thousand Jews who are really committed to the, uh, to the cause, to the mission of, a relationship with Hashem centered on Torah, tefillah, and chesed. That's beautiful. Does someone leave, do you feel that the average person leaves yeshiva if they have to go work to business, that they feel that the yeshiva wasn't supporting them with that move? Or do you feel to the contrary, do you see the, to the contrary, the yeshiva is happy for the time that they were there and want them to be able to continue what they do to provide for their family? 
there's an expression of which I'm sure you're familiar with, which is to make Torah the focus of your life and your work uh, temporary. And meaning to say the, it, it's a question of, of one's focus. There are, there are many, many people here who, uh, in the many thousands, who are engaged and very successful, I must say, in the workforce, um, in business, as professionals, as uh, business owners, as employees, but who uh, they're doing that. And they might even be doing that for the bulk of their day, or they are doing it for the bulk of their day. But it's not their raison d'etre. It's not their purpose in life. And the purpose in life is we're gifted as a Jew to live as a Jew, to live with Torah, to study Torah, and to bring Torah to, to our fellow Jews around us. And through that, to shape the world with a relationship with Hashem. That's the purpose. And the circumstance one is in is not doesn't reflect purpose. So I think that the litmus test, so to speak, if there is one, which there is not, thank God, but if there were a litmus test for what one would define as success, it's how real is that person with their Torah values. That's great. And, uh, you know, earlier this year, um, we were so fortunate to welcome you here. And you also, and a friend of yours came as well, who really embodies this, uh, Mr. Itcha or Joe Rosenbaum. And he's someone who I think he spends about four hours a day preparing his Dafyomi. And uh, you could say he's working, he's running an incredible uh, national commercial real estate company and title agency, but uh, there's no, there's no other way to say Taras Chakeva that the tour for him is set and it's, uh, it's focus. And I, I'm sure there are a lot of people like him, um, you know, learning the yeshiva, but they, they really take the yeshiva, the learning, the values with them. And it's really the forefront of their lives, even if they're, spending um you know so many hours in the office i uh you know i want to now go to some of your other work that you do you're i know you're involved with some advocacy um and and some i don't know if we'll have time to get into chemed and some of the medical things that you're in but i remember uh maybe a month or two ago when we were by your house rabbi morris and i and i think we came to your house a little after governor murphy (laughs) Um, left your house. I want to know if you could talk a little bit about your advocacy, uh, maybe your relationship with Governor Murphy and how that's benefited the yeshiva and really the entire Lakewood community. The the beauty of uh, religious communities is their sense of appreciation for those who are good to them and to political systems that are good to them. And the American experience has been an exceptional one for us as Jews here in the United States. It's imperfect. We all recognize that. No human creation will be perfect. But it has been exceptionally good for us as Jews to allow us to live with our values. And the elected officials, uh, I think many of them get a bad rap. You know, the press talks about politicians as if they're... Uh, all a bunch of corrupt, lot and all. And I have known many uh, folks in uh, in public office, and uh, by and large, they're uh, honorable, admirable, who really want to do the right thing. And we appreciate them for their service. They don't get enough thank yous. And you don't have to agree with someone to thank them for their devotion to the cause. And we have a lot of appreciation 
Some of that expresses itself in the voting booth um, and in other forms of moral support. We fetch like anybody else because we're Jews after all. So we've got to crush a little bit. Otherwise, we take ourselves too seriously. But uh, there's really a lot of appreciation for those involved in public service. And I think that forms the heart of the relationship. No, that's beautiful. That's great. Um, now let's get to some of your other work. For, I don't know if everyone here in Columbus or whoever else is listening around the world knows of Chemed unless you live in Lakewood. Um, and I think it stands for the Center of Health and Medicine, something like that. Tell tell our audience a little bit about what is Chemed. Everyone's heard that many people have heard the name, but like, what what is this place exactly? It's the Center for Health, Education, Medicine, and oh, Dentistry. I forgot the education. That's it's right. PCS a, is there too. I forgot. Right, right. Uh, so it is a uh, multi-discipline, multi-discipline uh, medical center that provides a high quality of care at affordable uh, prices for the families of Lakewood. Uh, last year was a little exceptional because of COVID, but uh, Chemet saw some 300,000 visits. Uh, in a typical year, it might be in the 250,000 range or so. Uh, it's got many physicians, uh, nurses, uh, other staff, exceptional staff, providing a very, very high level of care. And we started Chemed in about, we opened officially in 2009, but we started a little bit earlier with the sense that Lakewood is going to grow as a community. It's going to really expand and there'll be a shortage of primary care providers for women's health, uh, adult pediatric dentistry, mental health. And if we want to attract the providers, it would be uh, wise for us to build a home for them. So we built the health center. Um, it now has uh, three sites here in Lakewood. And we've received a tremendous amount of uh, collaboration and support from RWJ Barnabas Health, which is a very large hospital network here and with uh, others in the state and the federal government. Uh, and it stands on its, uh, on its feet as a place for health. The Rambam speaks, one should not live in a city without a doctor. So certainly that's an essential amenity of life. Yeah, we might not have needed it, but we were growing so fast that there was a realization we just would not have enough providers. And my understanding is that Chemed didn't start off as sophisticated as it is today, not just in size, but the, you know what they, the services they provide. I mean, I think they've added along um, dentistry, uh, women's health, mental health. I know they have a tremendous mental health branch. Um, how, how did that growth process come about? Well, the, the, the various areas of medicine were always in the strategic plan. And we did build out from... Uh, primary care and primary care for adults for children to build out to the other departments. Uh, there is an outstanding uh, staff and an outstanding leader. Dr. David Friedman is a, the uh, CEO. He's an incredible medical leader. And um, uh, Goldie Dross, which runs the mental health there, other great departmental leaders, Menachem Berkowitz and Operations, Jakob Schwartz, Kleber Orblowski, uh, just really, really great team overall and many, many others. My apologies that I can't name them all. Uh, but yeah, you, for, you forgot my father-in-law, the CFO, who was the yeah, the CFO. CFO. <laughs> yeah, 
So uh, the the uh, a really devoted team, and they're providing a service. And it's not just for the Orthodox community. Uh, a large percentage of the population is, who utilize this kind of a Hispanic, uh, African-American, senior citizens, uh, plain old non-ethnic Americans come there all the time. And uh, I think it was one of the largest vaccination sites uh, in this region for uh, for many, including seniors. So it's a, it's a great, a great required uh, element or amenity of life here. Wow. Yeah, we, were, we were privileged to build it. Wow. So I did not know that. So one of the largest vaccination sites in the region, you're saying, what was that, Hamed? Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Um, okay. So now I want to get to two last questions. If you could tell us a little bit about what you see the future of the Jewish people, at least from an institutional standpoint, um, you know, the kolos, the yeshivas, um, the schools, um, the synagogues, everything. Um, how do you see the Jewish people going forward um, to maintain strong in this, um, you know, in this very difficult and challenging time, the rise of anti-Semitism? And if you could also share with us, um, you know, if you have some ideas, some um, things that you wanted to be working on, what you want to be focusing on, so we could at least continue to live the strong Jewish lives that we have. Uh, I'm not exceptionally concerned with uh, the waxing and waning of anti-Semitism. It has always been an ever-present part of the human condition since the start of the Jewish people. Uh, you read about what Pharaoh had to say about us or Apian the Greek or, or others throughout history. So I, I, I certainly wouldn't define myself uh, in relation to anti-Semitism or my community. And I wouldn't uh, expend a whole lot of energy on it. Uh, probably a, a waste of energy. There are incredible organizations that are out there, including in government, but uh, organizations. I want to give particular shout out to the Simon Wiesenthal Center, which does an exceptional job uh, beyond belief. Uh, give a shout out to uh, organizations like ADL and uh, others who are, leading the battle against uh, anti-Semitism and other forms of hate. Those are important. But uh, as a Jew, I really, I, I, I don't define myself or think much about it in relation to that. I, tr- I try to think of what, what can we do? What should we do? Um, how do we elevate society as a whole? And you know, anti-Semitism is a disease of a weakened oak and uh, a healthy tree doesn't get consumed by its uh, by the viruses that attack the tree or by the various diseases that attack it. But when the oak is aged and uh, weak and it's not thriving, uh, then it becomes vulnerable. So our job as Jews and as uh, members of greater society is to bring about a healthy society for ourselves and for, for Hashem's world all of his creations that is healthy in every way. And the stronger we are, the stronger the folks around us are, the less vulnerable children will be, adults will be, others will be to uh, the ultimate antisocial behavior, which is or the ultimate form of rebellion, perhaps, which is, which is anti-Semitism. Very nice. And I guess somewhat in closing, um, as we speak, we are, in the works of planning some trip to Lakewood with a 
group. Uh, we would hope to get 30, 40, maybe 50 um, people here in Columbus to come visit Lakewood. And we had the opportunity, very unique opportunity, just a few months ago in September to welcome you to Columbus. So if it was Columbus were to come to Lakewood, God willing, it will happen um, in, in a sh- short few months. What should the people here in Columbus expect to see if they have not been accustomed to such communities before in the past? You know, Columbus is a storied community with a great history, and the idea that there's a kinship uh, between communities, there's a, a shared bond, uh, it's important for Lakewood to know it's not alone and important for Columbus to know it's not alone. And the same for every Jewish community. Where we tend to live as Jews, as religious Jews, we tend to be a minority, and uh, we're surrounded by a greater society. And Sometimes we can feel very small, very uh, inconsequential in a sense, uh, and not overwhelmed in any way, but somewhat inconsequential. And the the feeling of a Jew from Columbus coming to a Lakewood and seeing uh, seeing a vibrant, thriving place, uh, it's pride, it's joy. I'll never forget. I took a, uh, a, a one of my Syrian Sephardic friends on a tour of the yeshiva and he, he was in the business. He, he used to sell the Walmart and he says, this is bigger than Walmart. You know, Walmart was like the biggest retail vendor. He like, they sold more of his goods than anyone else, you know? And he said like, you know, and his idea of, uh, of, you know, uh, a dis- distribution warehouse track, the trailer is backing in and out of like a huge activity. He says this is much bigger than Walmart. That was, I had, we had a good laugh at that, at that analogy, but, this is this is bigger than uh, than Tesla and Amazon and and Meta or uh, or, or a- anything else that's out there. This this is life. This is the meaning of life, and to see it celebrated openly um, with uh, with a sense of not wildness but a sense of abandon is is a beautiful thing. And I would hope that the beautiful visitors that we will God willing host from Columbus return with an even greater sense of pride, which they already have as Jews. Beautiful. That is incredible. I love that. And um, this was an incredible opportunity for us to welcome you to our, uh, to our show, to our podcast. Um, I guess as a closing um, thank you to you, it's to me, it's really, um, you know, to say it's just a, it's a merit is, is so like, you know, not giving it justice, but my, Great grandfather of blessed memory, along with my grandfather, had the zechos, the merit to learn by your grandfather, and to see how the generations continue and your leadership, both in Lakewood around the world. And I was just a small little part, but uh, I was the first Lakewood guy to come to Columbus and to see this, our friendship and our relationship continuing. It's a beautiful thing. So thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your leadership. And uh, God willing, we'll. See you guys soon in Lakewood. I'll see you, I think, next week in Florida, but you're really back in Lakewood with dozens of Columbus folks, and uh, we look forward to that. So thank you once again. Thank you, Hill, and my warmest to Rabbi Morris, the other beautiful Rabbanim that I was uh, fortunate to meet on my visit uh, to Columbus. And you two come from a storied family. As you know, your Uncle Jim and I share a very, very special uh relationship, but your entire family is involved in building the Jewish people. And I wish you a lot of success in every way uh, as you go about your holy work. Amen. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care. Well, thank you for joining Kolot. Bye-bye.
Unreal. What a person. What a family. The Cutlers will go down in Jewish history as one of the biggest difference makers in the last century. If you have a takeaway, please share with us. We want to hear. Send us an email and we can read your thoughts on Colote. In our next episode, we will hear from a superpower couple, David and Ida Schottenstein. They bring such different things to the table. And that episode is where retail and mental health meet. Stay tuned for that exclusive interview right here on Colote. This is your host, Rabbi Kappenstein, signing off. Thank you for listening and looking forward to seeing you next time. To listen to all Colote episodes and see upcoming guests, visit colopodcast.com. We are also on all podcast players. Type in Colote on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Podbean, Amazon. Share with your friends and please make sure to give us a five-star review. Colote is a project of the Columbus Community Colo, a full-time Jewish learning center in Bexley, staffed with high-caliber Torah scholars. Ever since 1995, boys, girls, men and women from all backgrounds and affiliations have found many opportunities to connect with Torah and mitzvahs at the Kolo. Whether it's a study partner, engaging lesson, or a program, the Kolo is your one-stop shop for all your Jewish learning. If you want to know how you can benefit from the Kolo, visit thekolel.org. That is T-H-E-K-O-L-L-E-L dot org and forever be inspired.